Welcome to Making Waves, a monthly show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. On today's show, we are featuring sound art created in public outdoor spaces. In the second half, we'll listen to examples of sound portraits composed by Danish sound artist Jorn Teller. Sound portraits are impromptu compositions that Teller makes on location through one-on-one interactions with members of the public. In the first half, we'll uh, have a conversation with Jesse Stewart and Matt Edwards from Ottawa. They make up the duo Mixed Metaphors, and we'll learn about their approach to interactive art in public settings. They'll share their experiences making their latest works, Orbits and The Gong Show, which are uh, on exhibit at NASA uh, until uh, September 26th. Jesse Stewart is a percussionist, visual artist, and sound artist. Matt Edwards is an architect and musician. So um, we have two pieces at NASA at the moment. Uh, The one that we worked on together through Mixed Metaphors uh, is called Orbits. And Orbits is... um, is a sound art piece that uses a repurposed uh, gravity ball machine from the Museum of Science and Technology here in Ottawa uh, that we were able to procure a few years back. Um, and we uh, modified it so that when the balls circulate and, and drop down into the basin, the collection basin at the bottom, um, that sound gets processed and then uh, reamplified out into the space around it. Uh, in terms of what it looks like and sounds like. Uh, so it's a, a fairly large circular structure, about five feet in diameter, and it has an acrylic dome top. And so you can look down in, there's a little wheel that uh, visitors can spin. If they spin it in a counterclockwise direction, it releases up to like 10 or 11 steel ball bearings that orbit around and it takes quite a long time and they get gradually faster and faster and faster as they reach the central hole and then they drop down. Just a, a, maybe a, a few words about the the digital processing. The 
we, we've added uh, a contact microphone and um, uh, an effects processor that kind of adds reverb and uh, also um, does kind of you know kind of adds a, a it's a kind of harmonizer in a way and so it sounds kind of uh, science fiction esque, for lack of a better term, and so this this uh, when this uh, unit was on display for many years at the Museum of Science and Technology in Ottawa, it was it was um, billed as a gravity ball machine, and so I think the idea was this is imagine you know you're you're being sucked into a black hole or something, and so we wanted to do something that was kind of in keeping with the um, uh, well, that kind of space-oriented nature of the uh, object. And so we felt like that the sound that we chose, the sounds that we chose, the signal processing that we're using, has that kind of, uh, uh, yeah, sort of space-oriented or science fiction. It's like something you might hear in Buck Rogers or Doctor Who or something, that kind of a sound. When the balls finally drop, it's this kind of unexpected uh, sound, you know, and it sounds also because of the added reverb, it's a very wet sound. So it sounds quite cavernous as well. It sounds quite large. Uh, you know, sounds like there's this immense pit beneath the ball machine, but in fact, it's just uh, that we've added this, this signal proce processing. There's, there's almost an, like a, a kind of auditory illusion, um, of a large area of space below. Um, that's the, you know that's the kind of sound uh, effect that that comes from that. Yeah, and then, that, yeah, that's what we were going for. And uh, the other piece um, uh, that we have currently at NASA is a gong installation, which I uh, titled uh, maybe somewhat cheekily Gong Show, Gong Show. Uh, and uh, this is an outgrowth of a project that I've been working on during the pandemic. Uh, I've been making a series of uh, pitched 
plate gongs made out of aluminum, different uh, thicknesses and diameters of aluminum, and I've made quite a few of them. I made maybe, I don't know, 70 or 80 of these gongs of different sizes. Um, and um, I also have been working on a, a system uh, through which they can be played uh, by, um, by motion. So it's a kind of motion control gong installation. And uh, so I've been using this in a number of different ways, uh, one of which is actually over uh, Zoom. I've been using it to make music with people, uh, whereby I track their movements on the Zoom screen. Uh, and uh, and then they are able to trigger the the gongs which are positioned behind me and then I can play other instruments or I can play the gongs for that matter and we are able to, to to play music together but all they have to do at the other end is just move you know and so uh, when the opportunity came up to to do some pieces outside of uh, the the space in South River at NASA I thought it might be interesting to do a version of of this, these motion-controlled, mechanically activated gongs, and uh, so I hung three um, three gongs from the uh, one of the rafters that is um, in front of the of the space. It's sort of um, uh, you know, in, it basically, it's kind of a, a protected area in, in, over top of the front door of uh, the new uh, new NASA gallery. And uh, so there's three gongs hanging there, and I've added little mechanical strikers. And the wires, uh, you know, run along the beams and then down and into the, uh, the, the interior of the gallery space. And then in the window on the inside, I have an iPad position. And the iPad, uh, just basically I'm using the, the built-in webcam and the iPad and then some software uh, called the Adaptive Use Musical Instrument. And... Um, and this was a project, uh, the, the idea for the AMI, AUMI, uh, Adaptive Use Musical Instrument, it came actually from Pauline Oliveros, who was a friend of mine and, and a frequent musical collaborator. And she had this idea, it's a wonderful idea, probably at least 15 years ago uh, at this point. And um, she said, let's make an instrument that can adapt to anybody's range of motion. And so uh, basically, uh, and then she, you know, talked to me and to Ellen Waterman and Henry Lowengard and um, a number of other people, Sherry Tucker, Eric Lewis in, in Montreal. So people, you know, all over uh, the United States and Canada. And we all sort of started uh, brainstorming on how to do this. And, and then once we had a prototype, we've been kind of refining it ever since. And the iPad version, uh, the coding is all done by Henry Lowengard, uh, who's done a wonderful job. And I actually mainly just use the, the iPad version these days. And But for the most part, how people have used this, and we've used it quite a bit um, in making music with people who have disabilities of various kinds. So if someone can only move a few fingers, for example, because of a spinal injury, let's say, or they can only move their eyelids or whatever it is, we can zoom in, track that movement, and then that movement can then uh, generate sound and we can play music together. So that's how we've used it. Most of the time, I think the way just about everybody else has been using it is it just triggers like digital samples and you can change the sample and change the tuning and uh, do all these different things. But Henry also added some functionality whereby instead of triggering a digital sample, you can send a MIDI signal to another, uh, you know, to something else. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm using it, the, the Adaptive Use Music Instrument as an interface to track movement in front of the gallery at NASA 
And, and then in response to that movement, it sends a, a series of MIDI signals to the little mechanical strikers that are attached to the gongs. And so, so it's interactive in the sense that people, you know, who come to the front of the building, it's tracking uh, their movements. Uh, and so people can interact with it in a conscious way, or even just if they happen to be walking by, it will, you know, trigger a response. And actually, that was one of the challenges was that at first, it was much too uh, sensitive, and so every passing car would trigger would trigger the gong. So I had to take steps to make it less sensitive, so that you have to be you know within eight or ten feet or something like that, and uh, in order for uh, the iPad to track your movements and for the, the the MIDI signals to get sent to the mechanical strikers attached to the hanging gongs. Well, thanks for that outline. Um from both of you. Uh, so there's a few uh, things to explore in there. Um, with orbits, there's the aspect of the, uh, you could say, ready-made, if you will, uh, in terms of that, that ball machine and working with artworks that uh, where you uncover a, an existing thing and then work with its inherent qualities. Another aspect uh, that we could explore too today is um, alternative ways of making music in the case of using the the iPad screen as a as a way of uh, controlling uh, an acoustic event, as well as their aspect of of, uh, of it being uh, democratizing the uh, access to playing music to to anyone that um, can move in any way. Uh, there there was uh, some aspects there to explore. So uh, first, I want to go into orbits and uh, looking at this aspect of um, you know what attracted you to that particular machine or object how that's uh, different working with with something that's ha has a certain completeness in itself um versus you know you know both of you have a background in art making and design and architecture and things like that and how where you're often creating the structure you know in which things take place um, so the difference between inventing the context versus acquiring one the idea of um, creating something from scratch versus working with something that is ready-made and trying to, um, you know, kind of superimpose something on that or just or or create something from that. Uh, in both of those situations, there's a process of discovery. So, the the ball machine itself, uh, when we when we first got it, I mean, we didn't know exactly what we would do with it. Um, we just knew that it was something, uh, we, we knew that there was, um, some discovery to be made there. And, and it's a, it's a, something that actually, um, has a lot of significance and, and holds a lot of importance, um, for, for people in, in Ottawa. Um, anybody I've mentioned it to seems to have a story of going there either with their children or as a, as a child themselves and, and, you know, it's, it was there for a long time. Um, so, so it was important for us to kind of, um, uh, to have it for a while and to actually go through that process of discovery and trying to, trying to find, you know, the, the, um, trying to find the piece within the piece maybe is a, is a good way to say it. So to actually, you know, just try to understand it a bit better, um, through interfacing with it and, 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 you know, investigating some different possibilities there and uh and and what you know as as we mentioned what emerged from that ultimately um 
which dovetails with our kind of creative practice as mixed metaphors uh, more generally, is that there was this um, intersection between natural and cultural worlds. And in this case, uh, for the natural world, moving out further into into uh, the more sort of cosmic uh, realm and, and being able to translate um, a sonic effect into something that could be interpreted as being aligned with that, that kind of, you know, ethereal sci-fi-esque um, sound. And, and it just so happens that the visual component of these balls orbiting around this, you know, the center ties into those themes as well. So um, yeah, there was a process of discovery there. And I'd say that's the case with, with all of our work. Um, you know, we, we, whether it's something that we start with that has been made and we're trying to, you know, discover what can come from that, or we are starting from a blank uh, slate, blank canvas, um, so to speak. Um, there's still a process of discovery in terms of, you know, what site is this piece going to be at? What, you know, what's already there? What's being um, delivered to us by the context where this piece is going to be? How can we kind of work with that as well and, and, and go through that process of discovery um, for those pieces as well? One thing I might add to that is um, I think, you know, when, when working with found objects, which is something I do um, quite regularly in, in um, my work as a musician as well. In fact, the very first solo uh, recording I ever made was called Music for Found Objects. So percussionists do this as sort of part, part of how, you know, we engage with the world. But, uh, but that I think I like this idea of, you know, engaging in a kind of process of discovery. Another thing that comes to mind when we're creatively repurposing uh, some kind of found object, um, you know, what, what Duchamp called red, ready-mades, right? Um, there's also a kind of sense of wonder, I think, that goes along with that, that, you know, through that process of discovery, we, you know, we, we experience uh, a sense of wonder. And by extension, we hope that the people who engage with our work will feel a similar sense of wonder and discovery. So for, and for me, sometimes that, I think in, in a way, almost uh, using, um, you know, found objects, everyday objects, and then repurposing them in such a way that people kind of see and hear them in a different light, mm -hmm. uh, encourage, I, I think kind of encourages that mindset, you know, in that sense, sense of discovery and wonder. I was wondering if you could maybe go into a little bit more detail of what what you the two of you mean by get that sense of discovery in terms of developing or creating the piece, um, or your own way into understanding what, what this what this object does and what it represents. Uh, well, I think part of it, like we don't necessarily uh, know when we start start out working on something where we're going to end up. And so along the way, um, you know, very often that we, I mean, we make all kinds of different discoveries. We try things out and find what works and what doesn't work and yeah. so on. But, but that, that's an important part of the process, the creative process for, for both of us, I think, mm -hmm. you know, is that we leave room for those kinds of, um, yeah, just unexpected uh, you know, things that we discover along the way. To, that's an important part of the creative process for us. Yeah, like, you know, even I'd, I'd say we, that's one of the um, 
the things that we found through our collaborations is that we're able to work well together because we come into um, the process of each one of these you know pieces, the process of discovery with each piece. Um, you know, we might have some ideas as a starting point, but we always um, we do leave that space, that room for um, for you know the unexpected, for serendipity, um, for the kinds of things that that surprise us, right? We kind of you know it's it's a really nice um, experience for us working on these pieces together when we can be surprised. And there's that, you know, it it's it's almost like um, there's a there's an element of play there. There's an element of of almost like a like a childlike approach. Um, if we approach our pieces in in too rigid a fashion, often we miss out on you know some of the the better opportunities for what our pieces could become. So we try to stay kind of loose and flexible there, and and not keep anything off the table, you know. We don't want to become victims of our um, of our own process, I guess. You know, by thinking that oh well, we've done this enough. You know, we've done this enough now. We kind of know where this is heading. We we try to just leave that open so that we can um, kind of organically discover, uh, yeah, what discover a possibility there that that we might not have anticipated at the start. What type of um, arc is there in time for? that kind of discovery and play to take place is it is it a, a momentary thing like you know like it comes together you know very quickly or is it something that requires some contemplation and and uh, reflection for a period of time i think it varies yeah it's different it varies uh, i mean we we uh, we we um so the, the 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 ball machine went on the the government of canada surplus website I think in 2019, and I I saw it and re- and called Matt. And I said I think we could do something really interesting with that, and Matt was 100% on board right away. Yeah. And so the thing is, it's so big, uh, we had you know we had to rent a truck to get it and uh, move it. Uh, it's five feet in diameter. It's very heavy. I don't know. It's probably 300 pounds or something. Um, and we neither of us had a place to store it, so we put it. Um, a, a, a friend, a friend of uh, ours who lives in the country, um, has a kind of uh, workshop on his property, and he said, "You know what? You can you can use it. You can come and put it here and work on it." And uh, so uh, we did. And uh, very shortly thereafter, like I think a couple of weeks later, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and uh, so that so that kind of put a kibosh to my ability to go out and work on it at all. And so then I had brain surgery and I, you know, got better. I, you know, was recovering and, uh, you know, a few, took a few weeks to recover. Every three, four weeks goes by. And, uh, and then the whole world shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, so it was like over two years that we kind of parked that thing. What was intended to be a fairly short term situation ended up being, you know, something like close to three years or something. Yeah. But I think, I, for me, it still continued to kind of gestate. Like, what are the possibilities yeah, of that we, thing? We could, of... we could do something with it. And so we we're still thinking about it. And eventually, when we did get out there and start tinkering around, we tried out a bunch of different things. And, uh, you know, many of which didn't work. But, right. um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but eventually we found something and there was a kind of aha moment. Where we were like, that's, that's the, the right 
sound that goes with this and this is the right you know contact microphone and the right signal processing and the right amplifier all all that kind of stuff we tried out a whole bunch of different combinations until we we both kind of both of our eyes uh, lit up and we thought okay that's that's the sound what we were looking for it's true that how much it varies i mean sometimes you know it's it's almost um instantaneous and other times you know it's it's uh it's down the line, like after, after a number of discussions, after a lot of, um, you know, uh, trying to, trying to find that little nugget, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, and, and that's another area where we, where we try not to, you know, um, put too much, uh, constraint on our, uh, on ourselves, on our process. We try to leave, leave room to, to let that, you know, that time period, elapse um in the way that it needs to uh, but we're also willing to say you know if we if we come to something you know uh very soon after we start and we we sort of it's like we don't need to there's not a there's not a need to like keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing like we sort of yeah we we seem to know when we have something that we're um collectively interested in and then we sort of move forward from that point and just refine that and work with that and try to make something special that people can uh, can enjoy. Yeah, it's important to know when to stop too. And mm-hmm. say, okay, this 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 is the thing. This is what we, we want to carry to its log- logical conclusion. Because sometimes you can overwork a piece and then, it, you know, sometimes can <laughs> be detrimental. Another thing I would say that's kind of related to this discussion would be the, the role of uh, accidents you know, so so staying mm-hmm. open to accidental discoveries, things, you know, like I've actually, believe it or not, made discoveries, you know, by breaking stuff before. <laughs> like actually, well, so I'll give you one example. Uh, one time uh, there, there was a store I used to live near. It's been closed now for probably 20 years, but it was it was my favorite store. It was called Hobo Hardware. And pe- builders would like drop off used building supplies and stuff like that. And I would go there like every week because, and you know, all the artists, you know, would go and you know, this is when I was in art school and we'd all go and kind of, you know, find stuff and it was really cheap, you know. So once I went in there and there was a bunch of marble strapping, it was three inches wide and maybe three feet long, these um, pieces of marble. And I thought, you know what, I'll use that for something. And uh, so I, it was a great big stack of it. And I think I paid $20 for this whole big stack of marble. And then as I was carrying it out to the car, I dropped a piece. And it, of course, it broke. It shattered, hit the asphalt, and it shattered. And then I noticed as I was picking up the pieces that each piece had a kind of different pitch. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I wonder if I can, you know, actually cut and tune this stuff. And so uh, I ended up making an instrument out of it. I made uh, a lithophone, like a stone marimba, that I tuned in eighths of a tone. So 48 tones per octave instead of of the more typical 12. So I found that I could actually cut and tune it, you know, fairly precisely. And I just, I would score it and snap it and then use a grinder to, you know, grind it until I, you know, each bar reached the the pitch that, uh, you know, I was looking for. So that was, but that was a situation where it was an accident. I just dropped something and it broke. And then, you know, but, you know, if if we try to stay open and uh, we're on the lookout for such happy accidents and discoveries and things, um, you know, we can hopefully stay tuned and open to those things as part of our process. And sometimes we, you know, end up with, uh, yeah, you know, end up with interesting results. 
I know you have a background in improvised music, and uh, is some of that thinking uh, come influenced by that, where you have to be open to any situation and and work with it? Is it is this kind of inform the uh, the installations and public art that that you make with Matt? Very much so. And Matt, incidentally, in addition to be his training in architecture, is also a musician. He's a really fine jazz pianist. So he also has a background in improvisation. And we do perform together, you know, uh, uh, from time to time as well. So that's something we're both interesting, interested in. The word improvisation, uh, etymologically, uh, it comes from improvisus. So visus is like the, the root of vision uh, and pro means before and im means not so etymologically the word improvise means something that is not seen beforehand so i would say very much so uh the the part of the process you know is improvisatory in the sense that we st try to stay open to those things that aren't seen or heard uh beforehand the other connection i would say to improvisation in uh, some of the work that we do particularly around sound art is that um in a way, the work encourages the you know audience member or visitor to the gallery space or to the to the work. It incur it makes improvisers out of them, because so in in the example of the gong you know the gong piece, you know people improvise with their bodies by moving uh, to actually create the the sounds that they're hearing. But even something like orbits, uh, people still improvise in the sense that they determine. They have the agency to determine how long they're going to stay and engage with the piece, where they're going to position themselves relative to the piece. You know, are they going to turn the wheel? Are they going to stay and wait until the balls drop to listen to the sound? So in a sense, I think sound art actually turns the spectator, the visitor, the audience member uh, or gallery patron. It kind of turns them into improvisers and e emphasizes their creative agency in relation to the work. There's also part of that discovery that happens for us after a piece has been installed. Um, if we're able to either witness firsthand or uh, in some cases, um, you know, we've been sent videos uh, through our social media um, or, or friends interacting. And, and sometimes there are unexpected ways that people interact mm. with our work. True. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and so that's another kind of layer of that discovery. So, the, so, pieces aren't really, you know, they're not really done until someone has experienced them, someone has interacted with them. And part of that, that nature of interactive art is that, you know, we have a responsibility to try to anticipate uh, in terms of safety and in terms of the durability of the piece uh, or pieces. Um, we try to anticipate the way that people might interact with them. But I think in almost every case, we've been surprised. And, and sometimes it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> like, don't do that. But, um, but in other cases, it's like, oh, wow, that's really, you know, that's really interesting, uh, the way that, that they're engaging with our work, and it sort of transforms it again, for us, and we discover something new from that. So, so that, you know, the people that experience our work that interact um, with it, it, you know, that's, they're, they're participants in, um, in our process as well. And we learn from them, we discover from them as well. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, point is that the, uh, the experience is completed by the audience member. Um, do you find that um, in your schooling and education in architecture, is that 
concept of the public completing the 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 finished product is that something that's embraced or acknowledged or ignored or how how is that treated well it's it's interesting you bring that up i found for myself like i noticed that a lot of um, architecture is presented from the outside and sort of from a, a sky view in a lot of cases you see a lot of you know you'll see a model of a building presented from this view that we don't actually have ourselves typically um so for myself, I actually started a, a, an architectural design business based around the idea of designing from within the spaces. Um, it's called felt spaces design. Felt is in the past tense of feel um, with the idea that every space is felt and that when, um, when spaces aren't designed with that in mind, the experience of that space or those spaces is left up to chance. So I actually believe that the spaces themselves are actually participants in our experience. They're not just passive containers that we inhabit. Um, and as, as part of that, of course, yes, the people that experience um, those spaces are, are also, yeah, like a space isn't really finished either until someone has experienced it. Um, but, but it's interesting, like a lot of times the, the same technologies that, uh, that I use for my architectural practice do come into our process for uh, some of the pieces that we do as well, uh, immersive technologies. Um, so for instance, for, for the listening tree, we actually did uh, a full digital model, um, including some, some uh, um, auditory modeling as well and, and created a kind of virtual, um, you know, conceptual soundscape to present that work as well. Um, and I do the same thing with, um, yeah, with, with felt spaces. Um, but that also ties into another, we, we work on these pieces, we, we kind of pour our heart and soul into them, and we try to, and they, you know, we become very close to them. Um, but there's always this moment where you have to give it away. Right? I, I still remember like the first piece that we did together with the listening tree, like that moment where it was um, actually installed. And that first, you know, the first time we're like, Oh, this is real. This is on site now. This 15 foot tall stainless steel uh, tree sculpture is here. And now from this moment on, I mean, it's something that we created together, but it doesn't belong to us anymore. And so that, and it's the same thing with, with architecture. I mean, going to a site over and over and over through the process, um, being very intimately connected with that, um, with, you know, with each project. And then that moment where you have to step back and say, this is, this belongs to someone else now. So it's, it's kind of interesting with, with, uh, with art as well, like that with, um, you know, with these, with these pieces and, and the way that somebody experiences our work, the way that, um, that they engage with it. I mean, that's, that's from, I mean, that's theirs, right? They own that. That's, so that's something that we have to keep in mind as well. Darren, earlier you you talked briefly. You mentioned um, the democratization of uh, musical experience, or or perhaps we can broaden that out to think about aesthetic experience more generally. And um, and so that's that's a priority, uh, I think, for both of us. And and one of the reasons that um, you know we we are big believers in public art. 
actually. It, it uh, democratizes access to, to art, to culture. Uh, so putting art in public spaces. So the, so the fact that the, the pieces that we put uh, at NASA are in front of the building, for example. I mean, they are, in a, they are public in that sense, you know, that people can come and interact with them you know, uh, at any time. Uh, so that, I, I think that that, yeah, that sort of, there's a kind of social justice orientation, I think, in our work as well. Uh, that, um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, public facing works like that are, you know, are a kind of priority for us. Do you find that doing uh, public art uh, that's interactive, does it satisfy something that is not possible in music? Well, uh, I mean, I, I also uh, am fairly involved in, in um, what some people describe as the field of community music. So I, I have made a point for maybe the past 10 years or so uh, to become increasingly involved in projects whereby I make music with people who have maybe never made music before or people who have disabilities of various kinds that have, uh, in some cases anyways, prevented them from making music. And so then I think, well, let's, let's you know, use the adaptive use musical instrument or some other assistive or adaptive technology so that you can make music and we can, we can play together. So, um, so I would say, I think uh, public art and public interactive art is maybe part of the picture, but I think there are other ways that we can democratize access to, to the arts and, and to music and to the visual arts and, and to culture more broadly. And what are the benefits of, of democratizing it uh, as opposed to, you know, resting on your laurels and expertise and only working with the people that have that same level of expertise? Well, um, I mean, it's something I enjoy. I, I, again, I always, I always learn something from the process, you know, so it's, for me, it's, it's, uh, edifying. Um, but I also, uh, I just think that, the, that maybe we need to make that more of a pr uh, priority on a kind of wider societal level to make sure that everybody has access to the arts. I mean, this is, this, this is enshrined in the universal declaration of human rights. And I feel as though uh, we haven't done enough to ensure that everybody has access to the arts and to culture. Um, so uh, I, you know, so that's become a bigger priority for me. And I, th I think it's just something that that both Matt and I are, are committed to. And and I see, yes, the, the work that I do in the community music realm as a means to that end. But I also think that you know, public art. Uh, whether in, and in particular interactive sound art uh, that puts uh, some of the onus on the, the 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 person interacting with the work to actually kind of complete it you know and, and engage with it and, and activate it uh, I think that's you know um, I think it's 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 not just an aesthetic experience I think it's also it's doing cultural work that I think needs to be done you know making sure that everybody has those opportunities one other thing I was wondering is if you are giving the agency to the member of the public, um, is there anything that informs, say, the types of sounds or what's seen in the artwork that allows for that agency to, to happen? 
Uh, I mean, do you do you say, well, it won't use that because of, you know, it won't inform the experience? I mean, I don't really see it as I don't I don't think it's the job of the artist to dictate, um, you know, what something means or what kind of experience somebody should have. Um, you know, rather we have intentions, we put the work out into the world. Uh, you know, I think hopefully those intentions are evident in the work. I think sometimes even things like, you know, the title of a work can maybe give some clues as to the intentions behind it. Or if there's any kind of uh, write-up or description of the work, that might also. But ultimately, I don't think that's our job to say. And I think, frankly, it would be, you know, irresponsible to say, this is what this work means. Well, maybe, maybe to some people, maybe that's what it means to us, maybe. But that doesn't mean that that's uh, how it's going to be interpreted or, or, or what it's going to mean to someone else. You know, that that's, that's not our job. Our job is to put the work out there and then people have you know, some kind of experience with it. And then they can, you know, uh, decide for themselves what that, what the nature of that experience and the nature of the meaning that they're going to draw from that experience is going to be. Yeah. And actually a little anecdote that I just thought of as you know, when we were installing the piece uh, in front of NASA, was actually, um, uh, one guy that came by and, and, uh, uh, was interested. And so we showed him, you know, how the piece works and then he heard the the sound and uh said oh that sounds like a haunted house right and so that's something i mean that hadn't occurred to us and uh so that was his experience we thought that was really you know that was really interesting shout out to you um whoever you were dude that passed by thank you for engaging with our work <laughs> hope you're doing well um i I like to think maybe of it as a conversation, except that you're not present for the conversation, but the artwork is sort of your surrogate for the conversation. Is that, does that seem mm, like an mm. accurate way? You don't know what the outcome of the conversation is going to be, but you're kind of providing maybe the parameters for it. Yeah, I think that's a good way yeah. to think of it. Yeah. I, I mean, as with music, right? Yeah. And, and perhaps as with architecture as well. Um, I don't know how far we could go with this, but certainly, you know, for those things in the process of creating something for someone else to experience uh, a space to inhabit, um, a, a, a kind of musical experience to inhabit, um, uh, a, a sonic experience through sound art to, to inhabit as part of engaging, it's a conversation, kind of a fractured conversation. Um, and we're sort of starting that conversation um, with those who who encounter our work, and then and they they kind of yeah come into it uh, and fill that in with um, from their side. That was Jesse Stewart and Matt Edwards of Mixed Metaphors in conversation with Darren Copeland about their installations Orbits and Gong Show. Next, we're going to listen to a series of pieces called Sound Portraits that are made by Jorn Teller from Denmark. Uh, this also follows on the uh, topic uh, we heard earlier in the conversation about uh, ac- uh, expanding the access to music making and as well as finding uh, alternative ways of developing artist-audience interactions. In this case, uh, these pieces um, are made in a public setting um, by, by Jorn Teller uh, through kind of one-on-one interactions with the audience members. 
Uh, he might be uh, set up in a public setting, and uh, perhaps like a character artist doing portraits of uh, passers-by and uh, people willing to sit and interact with him. Uh, he, in turn, uh, makes sound portraits using a uh, combination of looping pedals and uh, uh, synthesizers and things like this that uh, are portable and uh, uh, that he has with him on the location. And uh, we're going to listen to some portraits that he made in 2012 called Nordic Sound Portraits, and this is number 1, 3, and 32 in that series. <laughs> Fordi jeg synes, det er en god sang, og jeg godt lide Veronica, Veronica Maggio. Oh, my God. 
finnes bort i regnet hans. Den de blomsten av dem er blitt helt noe slående og høy på det verden. Den har blitt litt hjemmeavrattet med litt penger. Det var litt høy noen litt hoppinger. Det var høy og prat lavs. Den er litt grunn til litt høytid. Det tar med seg noen litt høytid. Det er litt mer penger. Det er litt hoppet på etter det.
That was portrait numbers 1, 3, and 32 from Jorn Teller's Nordic Sound Portraits. They were composed in 2012, and in next month's show for Making Waves, we'll present new sound portraits made at an upcoming residency at NASA. Making Waves is produced by New Adventures in Sound Art on the second Saturday of every month for WGXC Wave Farm. If you like what you hear on WGXC, then please consider a donation in the upcoming Pledge Drive. WGXC is a one-of-a-kind standout among community and alternative radio throughout the world. If 
visit their website, wgxc.org, in the coming weeks to lend your support to sustain a place for adventurous audio.